Good morning, everybody. Welcome to day two of Peen Week, the 7 a.m. session. Everyone looks wide and awake, right? All right. So this morning's session is injections, nerve blocks, pumps, and spinal cord stimulation. Our distinguished faculty today is Dr. Paul Christo from the John Hopkins School of Medicine. Uh, two administrative reminders. One, if you'd like to provide feedback on the session, you can do so through your Pain Week app. And then afterwards, time permitting, we will do an open Q&A session, so just raise your hand and Dr. Crystal will call on you and I'll run the microphone over for any Q&A. Sound good? All right, well please help me welcome our distinguished speaker today, Dr. Paul Christo. Great, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. All right, well let's go ahead and start. Uh, the disclosures are on the screen. And in terms of learning objectives, what I'd like to, for you to get out of the presentation is to identify patients that can benefit from interventional procedures, and uh, specifically spinal-related procedures, but some non-spinal procedures as well. And then to recognize what they are, right? Which ones, I'm gonna go over some basic uh, spinal procedures and interventions that we do, but I'd like you to be able to recognize what they are. And then finally, to describe patients who can benefit from neuromodulation therapies. I'm going to discuss a little bit about spinal cord stimulation, intrathecal pumps, maybe a little bit about peripheral nerve stimulation as well. So I'd like for you to be able to describe those patients who can benefit from those therapies so that you can either do them yourselves or refer them to a pain specialist who performs them. Well, I mean, there's no question today that we have this problem, this dual problem of the epidemic of chronic pain, 116 or so million people in this country who are suffering from chronic pain, and now at the same time over the last several years, we've been bombarded by the media in terms of the number of people who are dying from opioid overdose. And there's no question that that's a terrible problem. I personally don't think that that's necessarily the patients that we see in the chronic pain clinic, however. That is chronic pain patients who are legitimate and using opioids rationally and reasonably. In any event, I think that what we're going to see in time, what we've seen already, is that the CDC guideline is putting a dampening effect on the number of opioids that are being prescribed. And I think that that will shift, hopefully, the pendulum. Because right now I feel like we're at the, the pendulum is shifted over to the increased risk and rate of misuse, abuse, and addiction versus focusing on those who have chronic untreated pain. Prescription monitoring programs are helpful. Risk management and new drug formulations in the form of abuse deterrent formulations may help too in terms of those who would have used the medication and inject it um, intravenously or inhale it. I want to touch on the CDC guideline. I'm sure most of you know this about the CDC guideline already, but in the guideline, it does talk about, you know, they're, they're, they want all of us to focus on non-opioid therapies and non-procedural, uh, sorry, non-opioid therapies and non-pharmacological therapies. And subsumed under that category are things like procedures, exercise, weight loss, psychological therapy, and sleep interventions. But procedures are listed there, things like intraarticular steroids for osteoarthritic pain of the knee, or subacromial bursa injections for rotator cuff tears of the shoulder. And they also discuss the value of epidural steroid injections. So I think that this is important, especially for primary care physicians to know about, uh, either you, if you perform some of them yourselves or uh, knowing the value of them for patients who have chronic pain, especially given this age of um, the downward pressure on using opioids. Well, historically, many, many of the analgesics that we use today were developed in the 20th century. Things like acetaminophen, NSAIDs, and opioids, for example. Uh, the expansion of regional anesthesia occurred in the 20th century, 
as well as the development of spinal and epidural anesthesia. More of the techniques associated with regional anesthesia were applied to acute pain and then to chronic pain management. It was in the 1980s that we started using the intrathecal use of medications. Um, cocaine, for example, well, I'm sorry, cocaine was developed actually in the early 1900s for intrathecal use. Later on in the 80s, we started developing the development of intrathecal pumps and the use of analgesics like clonidine, bupivacaine, morphine intrathecally for pain control. Spinal cord stimulation actually has a history that dates back to 1967 when that was used by a neurosurgeon by the name of Sheely, Dr. Sheely, who implanted the device in the thoracic spine for a patient who had intractable bronchogenic carcinoma. And it's reported that after the implantation, it provided substantial relief until the end of his life, which was only, I think, about two weeks or so afterwards. But that actually began in 1967, if you can believe it. However, the expansion of its use developed in the 1990s to the point that today we have, what, six or so manufacturers of spinal cord stimulation spinal cord stimulator devices in the United States. And I'll talk about those later on. You know, we do injections for various different reasons. This little cartoon, I think one of my patients gave me one day, and it says, the Johnstown Acupuncture Associates. You've got to be kidding. Your back still hurts. And there are tons of needles, you know, that are <laughs> placed in this patient. I think sometimes patients feel like they are pincushions, and they've been to other practitioners or other physicians who perform lots and lots of injections without much value. So I feel like I'm here today to describe to you where the value lies in doing procedures. I, don't want, I certainly don't want patients of mine to feel like they're pincushions. It's important to use injections rationally. So we do them for their therapeutic value, clearly. We also do them for their diagnostic value because it can be very difficult at times to sort out the etiology of a chronic pain syndrome. Think of low back pain, for example. I mean, the cause of low back pain could be degenerative disc disease. It could be a disc herniation. It could be musculoskeletal pain. It could be the facets. I mean, there are numerous reasons. So in those circumstances, I think doing an anesthetic block can help establish the basis for a chronic pain syndrome, and then it's very valuable. It has its prognostic value as well. For example, we'll do facet joint or medial branch blocks of the lumbar spine prognostically to determine if patients uh, derive relief, and if so, then, that, then it's likely that they are suffering from uh, lumbar facet disease, and that could be the cause of their low back pain. The prognostic value of that is that we can follow that up with a radiofrequency denervation procedure for more sustained relief. There are certainly expectations, no question about it, on the part of patients who come to see us for procedures. Often they want their pain to go away completely. Can you take it all away? You know, just do an injection, and it'll go away forever. Well, you know, I wish it would. It doesn't usually, unfortunately. Referring doctors have expectations that we can provide good relief from injections and colleagues as well. So there are fairly, I think there are like four or so prime reasons that we do injections. Let's talk about some of the major, what I want to do now is talk about the major causes of pain. Number one of the top three is low back pain. So let's talk about the etiology. And you can see from the slide, it's multifactorial. I mean, the facets can cause low back pain. The sacroiliac joint can cause low back pain around L5 and below. Neuropathic pain from disc herniations, from central canal stenosis, from nerve root stenosis can cause low back pain. The disc itself is a large contributor of low back pain, degenerative disc disease, for example. And there are a lot 
There are a fair number of muscles in the low back that can contribute to low back pain. So there are many etiologies of low back pain. And that's why earlier I said sometimes the anesthetic blocks can serve as a model of what might be occurring uh, in terms of an etiology of pain when it's difficult, and often it is, to sort out what might be the pain generator. Well, let's talk about epidural steroid injections. I mean, they are a common procedure for low back pain. The indications for this, and keep in your mind, I'd like you to keep in mind what the major indications are for these procedures. It's really radicular pain, right? It's neck pain, shooting arm pain. It's low back pain, shooting leg pain. It's the shooting neuropathic component of pain for which the epidural steroid is the most useful. And it can also occur in the thoracic spine in patients who have intercostal neuralgia, for example. They feel pain posteriorly that wraps around laterally and sometimes ends up anteriorly. <clears throat> the source can be multifactorial. Often it's nerve root irritation or nerve compression, spinal narrowing from a herniated disc or from spinal stenosis. The approaches to this, and I like to go over some of them, um, are a couple. I mean, we can do an intralaminar epidural steroid injection, right, in the, everywhere, frankly, in the, in, the, in the neck, in the thorax, in the low back. You can even do a caudal from the tailbone. There are transforaminal injections that focus on the nerve root. There are, well, and, and all of these are really performed under fluoroscopy, sometimes under uh, ultrasound, but typically still under fluoroscopy and preceded by contrast. Well, here's just a picture of the spine that I wanted to show you so you can get an understanding of what, what it looks like. I think it's helpful to grasp these concepts when you see a picture of it, but you can see here the, let me see if I can, here we go. Spinous process here, lamina here, here. Here's the ligamentum flavum. That's what we go through when we perform an interlaminar between the lamina, epidural steroid injection. Here's the spinal cord. Here's the spinal nerve root. It's an oblique view, so it's twisted slightly. And here are the vertebral bodies. So just keep that in mind when I talk about these injections. Okay, here's a depiction of a disc herniation. It doesn't exactly look like this, but when you have a disc herniation, it can mechanically compress the nerve root, which is what you see it doing here, causing back pain, for example, and that radicular component of pain down the leg past the knee, shooting leg pain. Now, it can also not compress the nerve root. In other words, it may not be mechanical, but it might be the um, extravasation, if you will, of cytokines from inside the disc, like TNF-alpha, tumor necrosis factor alpha, that then sets up an irritation of the nerve root and causes back pain and shooting leg pain. Here's an MRI of a patient who has a disc herniation. And it, it's a woman who, has, who presents with back pain, mainly buttock pain, and shooting pain down her leg laterally into the lateral aspect of her foot. What you see on the MRI here is you could, here's the disc right here. And I'm not sure if you can appreciate this because of the lights, but there's a disc herniation here off to the left-hand side pressing up mechanically against the nerve root. Here's one, a nerve root here. Here's a nerve root there. Spinal cord is right in there. And these are facets, by the way. Here are the facet joints. So this is what you might see on an MRI of a patient who presents with, say, lumbosacral radicular pain, causing discomfort in the buttock, shooting down the lateral aspect of the leg in an L5 distribution. This is a, so when we do an interlaminar, this patient then that I discussed would be a, probably a candidate for an interlaminar epidural steroid injection 
or transfeminal. But let's just talk about the interlaminar approach. This is the basic approach that's used. You can see that what we do is we use a needle, and we, I'll do this side too, and we, um, we penetrate the ligament and flavum, and that's what we're doing. So here's the flavum, and once you get past the ligament and flavum, you enter the epidural space. There are veins there. There's an epidural venous plexus here. There's fat. There are, there are arteries as well. So the point here is that what we're doing is we're choosing the correct level. In this patient, it might be L5-S1 because she's got symptoms in that area. And we're going through the ligament and flavum with a needle, loss of resistance to air, loss of resistance to saline, for example. Once we get into that space, we then inject contrast, and then we inject steroid, typically local anesthetic, and saline, some mixture of what I described. Now, in patients, and there are many, unfortunately, who have had spinal surgery, for example, suppose they've had a fusion, three, four, five, and they've got rods there, and they have screws in the pedicles. Well, and they present, similarly, like with the patient that I described earlier, back pain or buttock pain, shooting leg pain. You can't really access the epidural space in that area, L3 to 5, um, because, well, most often they've done, the surgeons have done laminectomies, they've fused it. You can't act. There's going to be no loss of resistance because the ligament and flavum is gone, typically. So the safe thing to do, and what's fortunate, is that we can use the caudal approach. The caudal approach, then, is is accessing the epidural space from the tailbone, which is what this is showing. Patient's lying prone, and we're accessing the epidural space via the tailbone with a small needle. I mean, the needle is maybe I mean, a 22-gauge, 3.5-inch needle. Once that space is entered, the same process ensues. Injection of contrast, and then this would be probably a larger volume so that it can reach up to, say, L5, the area of interest, maybe 8 cc's or so of a mixture of steroid, local anesthetic, and saline, not everyone uses that mixture, right? I mean, some are going to use just saline and steroid. Others may just use steroid, for example. But you've got to use, typically, it's some combination of local anesthetic, steroid, and saline. Now, I wanted to show you <clears throat> the interlaminar approach from the neck because this is also done. Suppose a patient has, you know, neck pain and shooting arm pain. Uh, from a disc herniation or from stenosis. Well, that patient would be a candidate for this type of injection. Patient lies prone on the table, and we access the, uh, inter the epidural space, similar to what we did before for the lumbar spine. It's more delicate in the neck, clearly. It's a smaller space. Uh, usually what we're doing is accessing around C7-T1. Now, you can access other areas, you know, depending on the patient's level of pain, if it's at 3, 4, 4, 5, 5, 6. Somewhere around there, you can access it. Um, the flavum is less consistent in the neck, the ligament of flavum. So it's the most, we think it's the most, it's the thickest, if you will, at lower down in the neck, like C7T1. Um, so that's why we usually choose that area. And then you can, again, increase the volume to move the injection superiorly, if you need to, to the area of concern. This is an interesting technique you may or may not have heard of, and this is called the transforaminal epidural steroid approach. And what it means is we're accessing the epidural space by means of the nerve root. So if the, in the patient that I described, think of that patient I described earlier, buttock pain, shooting leg pain, down L5 distribution from disc herniation. Well, instead of doing the interlaminar approach, we can do a transforaminal approach around L5, targeting that nerve root specifically. And that's done by uh, placing the needle along the nerve root. 
Now, this is a great picture. This is one that I use a lot in teaching uh, the residents and the fellows. I think it depicts it. It helped me when I was learning how to do these procedures, frankly. It's a transverse view of the spine. And what you're seeing here, again, it's probably a little tough from the lights, but here's the aorta. Here is the disc. Here's the nucleus, the annulus of the disc. The nucleus is inside here. And then this is the area of interest. So this area here, you can see, here's the spinal cord right there. So it's right here. That's the spinal cord. And what we're seeing is, what you're doing is um, accessing the nerve root here. So this is showing a different level. It's not L5, but the process is the same. What we're doing is accessing this area here along the nerve root and then injecting contrast, maybe you know a cc or two ccs or so, and then injecting the same type of material, if you will, steroid local anesthetic saline. Probably not of the same volume that we would inject it in the lumbar spine. Keep in mind, so this is the spinal cord. Here are the spinal nerves. Here, here, coming off either side. Here's the epidural space. Here anteriorly and posteriorly. So it's here and here. You can see the veins in there and they're depicting fat in there. Remember, and I think we forget when we do these procedures sometimes, that the epidural space surrounds the entire cord. It's not just in the posterior aspect of the cord. I mean, it, it surrounds the entire cord. And that's what this is showing you. Here, by the way, is the spinous process here. Lamina here, facet joints there. These are the muscles, the paraspinal muscles are there. Uh, these, by the, this is showing the sympathetic chain here and here, lumbar sympathetic chain. So when we, when we perform the transforaminal epidural steroid, what we're doing is really accessing the anterior epidural space more than the posterior epidural space. It can move posteriorly and anteriorly, but more often than not, it, it moves anteriorly this way. And theoretically, that would be better if you have a disc herniation, right? Because the disc is here, and it would herniate posteriorly this way, pressing on the nerve root. So you're closer to the area of pathology. And you're also closer to the DRG, the dorsal root ganglion, which exists in here as well. I'll show you some evidence for this versus the interlaminar in a minute. Who are the ideal candidates for epidural steroid injections? Keep these in mind. <clears throat> Those who have you know, a herniated nucleus pulposus, that's what HNP is, causing radicular pain are good candidates. If they have a shorter duration of pain versus uh, a longer duration of pain, they're better candidates. What does that mean? What is how, you know, how long? Well, you know, if someone has pain for six months or longer, they're probably not great candidates for the injection. So it's probably less than six months. If they have leg pain more than back pain, better candidate. Now, they, a lot of patients who have disc herniation, suppose they have stenosis, will complain of low back pain. I mean, it isn't often, well, I, I don't know. It's not that often that I just see someone who has shooting leg pain. Often there's some component of back pain to that, and that's okay. But if they really, it gets tricky. Some, the nuances sometimes can be tough because if patients say, well, you know, 80% of the pain that I feel from this discarnation is in my back, just 20% radiates down my leg. Well, are they good candidates? If you look at the literature, probably not as good of a candidate. However, I mean, anecdotally, I can tell you those patients can still do well. If they don't have psychological overlay, and that's not easy. Sometimes, you know, obviously, if patients have had pain for many, many months or certainly years, um, you know, I mean, life changes and it, can, it becomes difficult. So, uh, but nevertheless, if you look at the literature, you know, if they don't have psychological overlay, they're more likely to benefit. If the pain is intermittent, meaning they don't come to you and say, 
you know, this pain that's in my back and down the leg is there 24-7 versus it's intermittent. I'm good for several hours, and then I feel it. And if they're of younger age, then they typically do better than if they're older. The other, what I want to also mention here is the imaging correlation. Think of the image that I showed you before, that MRI. Well, that would be a great correlation, right, for a patient who came to you and said, gosh, I've got buttock pain. It shoots down the left side in an L5 distribution. Well, that's a great imaging correlation. Uh, good candidate. Now, on the other hand, if there is no imaging correlation, probably less of a good candidate. I mean, you know, there are some patients who, for some, you know, and I can't really explain this neuroanatomically or physiologically, but, you know, they'll, they'll say, God, I've got this horrible pain that shoots down my leg. We do the MRI. It's pristine. It's perfect. There's nothing there. EMG nerve conduction test, nothing there. Do I do the injection? Well, sometimes, you know, I might offer it, one. But, but typically, you know, again, if you're looking at the science here, evidence-based, those patients that I just mentioned would probably be poor candidates. This is a picture. I wanted to show you, like, under fluoroscopy, what it looks like. Uh, but and what you're seeing here is that we're, I'm injecting at, well, here, let me show you. It's hard to see it. Sorry about that. But down here, so here's L5. You can see that. L5 vertebral body is here. Sacrum is here. The needle is coming in laterally. And you can sort of see the contrast outlying the nerve root in this area here. This is more of an interlaminar, but this is more of the transferaminal approach here. If you look at the studies, then you're going to see that. I'll, do you mind if I um, keep going and then take questions after? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know what to do. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll, I'll go back and forth. I don't know. I'm not sure either, but well, I'll just go back and forth. But I was. So here, no, no, no problem at all. Here's L5, lumbar level 5. Here's the sacrum, and this is showing the needle coming in around L5. The contrast is in here. It's, again, I wish you could dim the lights so you could see this better. If there's any way to dim the lights, that would be great. But anyway, you're seeing the contrast in this area outlining the nerve root. And the, most of the studies show short-term benefit of epidural steroids. Uh, there's less evidence for long-term benefit, but I'm going to show you some evidence, more recent evidence, that demonstrates that there is quite good evidence for long-term benefit of epidural steroid injections. You know, I wrote here that it usually provides relief for six weeks or longer, um, but even more evidence suggests it can be longer than six weeks, several months, frankly. There, were, if you, there are several studies that compare these two approaches, the intralaminar approach versus the transferaminal approach. And several of those studies show that that transferaminal approach is more beneficial than the interlaminar approach. But there's even more recent evidence that demonstrates that there's really no difference between them anymore. Some, one of the questions that arises is often, well, how much steroid do you use? Because steroids epidurally can lead to side effects. There's no consensus on this, to my knowledge, in terms of the guidelines. Do you use 40 milligrams of methylprednisolone? Do you use 80? Do you use 120? Do you use 100? Typically, you try to keep the dose lower to reduce the side effects. And what we do is probably, I mean, I would say that most often, there's very little evidence for steroid doses greater than 40 milligrams now, say of methylprednisolone. But that's not in guidelines yet. There's no guideline that I've seen that indicates that. But we're trying to reduce the risk of things like, you know, development of osteoporosis, which, by the way, interestingly, 
there is some evidence that in postmenopausal women, we should use lower doses of steroid um, and not offer the injections as frequently because it can, they are at risk of osteoporosis. We're also trying to limit the dose of steroid to reduce the risk of adrenal suppression. Here's a slide on outcomes with respect to the steroids. Let me just focus your attention on the, the fact that the interlaminar and transforaminal approach are today, we feel, pretty much equal in pain relief and functional improvement for the lumbosacral radicular pain. And look at this, there's strong evidence for short-term efficacy, which would mean less than six months, but that's not bad. I mean, it could mean three weeks, but typically less than six months is, in my experience, patients get two months, three months, somewhere around there of relief. And if you have this pain and medications are not helping and the integrative therapies are not beneficial, well, gosh, you know, it really is a relief to be able to have an injection to reduce your pain and give you a break. There's moderate evidence for long-term efficacy that is greater than or equal to six months for pain management and for managing disability. Now get this, this is interesting. This is a study that was fairly recently done. I think it was a retrospective study or maybe an observational study in 2016 that indicated that epidural steroid injections in the lumbar spine, that is intralaminar or transforaminal or caudal epidural steroid injections, may prevent the need for spine surgery. And these are patients who had chronic sciatic pain, again, lumbosacral radicular pain, for at least six months or so. They had six months or so of symptoms. And I believe the article stated that there was an 80% reduction in the risk of needing surgery, which I think was tremendous. Let's talk about the facet joint. So I talked about the low back, for example, the radicular component of pain when we do epidural steroid injections. It's similar in the neck. Again, if patients present with disc herniations in the neck or the thoracic spine, which is less often, they're candidates for the epidural steroid injection. The facets can lead to low back pain. They can lead to neck pain. This is a picture here of what the facets look like. They are actual synovial joints. They have a little synovium inside them. They're innervated by two medial branches. Those branches are called medial branch, medial branches of the posterior primary ramus. So they're medial branch blocks. That's what we're performing. And the focus of the facet joint is to protect the spine against axial loading. I mean, it protects the spine against the downward pressure that we place on it when we're standing, for example. I mean, the disc does a lot of that, but the facets assist the disc in reducing and supporting that pressure that we place on the lumbar spine. Uh, the, the, what we're looking at here is an oblique view of the spine and these are the facet joints here, in here, in here. So it's a little, I'm sorry, it's a little tough to see, but what it's showing are the, the facet joints, and it's showing the nerves that are innervating those joints. That's what it's showing here. Same thing here. That there are small little nerves, and they're very tiny, that innervate the facet joints. There. And this is a, an axial view. Here's the vertebral body. I'm, yeah, here's the vertebral body. Here's the spine, spinal cord and the nerve roots that are emanating from the spinal cord, and they're showing the, the branches of the posterior primary ramus, the sensory branch that innervates these joints. Uh, here's another view of this. This actually shows even a better view, and one under MRI. And what you're seeing here is the same thing, so it's an oblique view. Here's the joint right here. Here, here, here. That's the facet joint, and it's being innervated by a medial branch nerve. 
This is an MRI. Here's the disc. Spinal cord is in there somewhere. The facet joints are right here, here and here, right in there. And then same thing here. The, the, this is the axial view of the lumbar spine. Here's a disc. This is the spinal cord area. The facet joint is there and there. And this is the facet joint right in here, right in there. Okay, so keep that in mind. That's what we're trying to target when we do these blocks. The indication, patients will say, you know, my pain is deep. I feel like it's in the low back. It's on either side of the spine. I feel it in the buttock at times. That's what, or in the neck too, they may say the same thing. It's in the neck. I feel it maybe in the shoulder area. And by shoulder, they really mean the scapula. They feel it in that area too. And that's what they're typically describing. Patients who've had whiplash injury often injure their facet joints. They can certainly, the joints can become arthritic, enlarged, hypertrophic. Those types of conditions can lead to facet joint disease and pain. Now, if they've had spine surgery, that can also predispose to pain related to the facet joints. The approach here is usually under x-ray guidance as well. They lie in their belly, the nerve is identified, and just a little local anesthetic is inserted. I mean, maybe a half a cc or so of 0.25% bupivacaine, or you can use lidocaine, doesn't really matter, but it's a small little amount to block nerve transmission. This is a view of what I was saying. The top view, the top image d demonstrates where patients may describe pain in the lumbar spine. It could be in the buttock area, it could go down to the posterior thigh for lumbar pain. Um, in the neck, those are the referral zones. So you can see there are several referral zones in the neck. Patients may say, uh, gosh, I feel pain in the occiput. So it can range from the occiput all the way down to the inferior, close to the inferior border of the scapula in terms of referral zones from different facet joints. What C23 is, is saying is the C23 facet joint is causing pain in that area. The C34 is causing pain in that particular area. Like 34 would be here, 5, 6 would radi could uh, refer pain to this area in the neck for border of the scapula. So that's what those numbers represent. Four or five would represent pain in this area, so neck, uh, like entirely the neck, sort of the, the post, almost as high as the uh, posterior aspect, um, like the occiput down to the neck. Six, seven, you can see, is lower portion of the neck all the way down to the scapula. So those are areas where patients may report pain if they have cervical facet joint disease. And here, this is a picture of where they might report pain from lumbar facet disease. It can be focal, as you can see, more focal on either side of the spine. Typically, it's not the center of the spine. It's not along the spinous processes. It's paraspinal. And it can go down to the buttock or posterior thigh. Rarely do I see it go down to the legs, frankly, you know, but it can. There isn't always evidence, I'll tell you, on imaging of facet joint disease. It may not be there. In fact, it often isn't. You might see hypertrophic joints, but you might not. And that's why the, the blocks are helpful in diagnosing the condition. This is demonstrating just you know, where we would place it. So after we do the blocks, we do the denervation. And the denervation procedure is what provides more sustained relief. And this is just depicting where we do that, the denervation procedure. It's using a, a specific needle along the length of those medial branch nerves that I showed you earlier and heating them up, essentially. You're heating them and you're, you're causing a nerve ablation, decreasing the ability or removing the ability for them to transmit signals to the spinal cord. 
And that's true. We do that denervation procedure in the neck, in the low back. It can be done in the thoracic spine, but patients really don't have a lot of uh, medial, like medial branch pain or facet joint pain in the thoracic spine. Um, this is another depiction of where we're targeting those nerves. And the nerve, the nerve target, again, is here's the spinal nerve coming out of the foramen, and the medial branches are here. And these are the little branches that we're targeting with the nerve blocks and the denervation. That's, those are the nerves that we're targeting right there. These are innervating the facet joints. In the neck, I just wanted to show you that how we sort of target those, those nerves. They're very small in the neck. They exist along the articular pillar. And the articular pillar is here. These are the pillars right in here. And we're targeting those tiny little nerves. I mean, you know, we inject maybe, I inject a three-tenths of a cc, maybe a half a cc of local anesthetic there diagnostically. And then the denervation procedure is performed in that area as well. Okay, is denervation effective? Yes, it is. In the neck, in the low back. We have good studies that support its efficacy for neck and low back pain, both short-term and long-term. Well, what are successful predictors in patients? Patients who have paraspinal tenderness, very low or no psychopathology, and if they have fewer levels affected, they typically do better with denervation than not. I'll have a lot of patients feel like, gosh, this, this denervation helped reduce my pain for three and a half months, but it's back. Can you do it again? Yes. The answer is yes. We can repeat it, and with good efficacy. 85% success in lumbar and cervical spine with similar previous duration when we repeat these procedures. In my experience, sometimes patients don't do as well, meaning that their degree of relief or their length of relief isn't as long. However, they still can generate quite a bit of relief. Are there complications from this? Very few. I mean, very few. Serious complications are less than 1%. Neuritis can occur because you're severing the nerve, really, essentially, with the heat. And so you can get ectopic impulses generated causing neuritis, but we inject a little steroid after we complete the procedure to reduce that risk. I just wanted to mention here some other therapies that are effective for low back pain because there are several. Exercise, anti-inflammatories, tricyclic antidepressants, or SNRIs that I use as well, like nortriptyline I use sometimes for low back pain. I also would use some Balta, Duloxetine for low back pain. Acupuncture can be very helpful for neck and back pain, massage, and CBT. Let me talk about the sacroiliac joint. This is something that's not often appreciated and forgotten, frankly, as a source of low back pain, like L5 or below, buttock pain. This is the fusion of the ilium and the sacrum, and that's what this is showing you. Just the fusion, that's where the joint is located. Here's the sacrum, here's the ilium, and there's the joint right in that area. <clears throat> Most patients would, have, would report pain in, say, L5 area and buttock. Here's the sacrum, here's the ilium, and there's the joint right in there. And we're usually targeting sort of the inferior aspect of that joint. This represents as many as 30% of cases of pain that's just in the low back, so axial lumbar pain below L5. Usually we're seeing it in patients who are younger and older. The cause could be inside the joint or even external to the joint. So it can be intraarticular or extraarticular, meaning the ligament. Almost 50% is secondary to trauma, a certain type of traumatic event. The predisposing factors are excessive rotation and axial loading, 
leg length discrepancy. Now, how often do you measure leg length discrepancy? I don't really do that, um, unfortunately. I mean, uh, physical medicine rehab is perfect for that, so is physical therapy. But even, you know, five millimeter differences in leg length discrepancy can lead to pain in the sacroiliac joint and stress it. Scoliosis, patients who have scoliosis are predisposed to having sacroiliac joint pain, previous spine surgery, and then, well, pregnancy as well. The referral zones for this, so keep in mind, think of buttock pain, think of thigh pain. Most of the time, patients who have uh, sacroiliac joint disease are going to report buttock pain, low back pain, sometimes extremity pain, like the thigh. So this is a little confusing because you sometimes it can you know, overlap with the facet joints or facet joint disease or even sometimes stenosis, disc herniation. But most of the time, low back and buttock. So if pain is in the, as I mentioned, low back, buttock, sometimes the groin, not very often. Uh, and the source is interesting. So the source here could be a fall. Some patients may say they've fallen down or they've lifted something heavy. They're moving. I've had many patients move. They're picking up boxes that are heavy. It's a sudden jolt and movement and they feel the pain. Or if they're involved in jobs that, in, that require a lot of lifting and bending, that can predispose them to sacroiliac joint pain. We uh, approach this inside the joint, so we insert a needle inside the joint or on top of the joint as a diagnostic test, or you can actually use uh, steroid too for its therapeutic value. Well, are they helpful? Do they work? The literature says, uh, based on the studies, that there is short-term relief associated with these injections with steroid. Less evidence for long-term relief. What about radiofrequency? Because the good news here is that if patients don't derive a lot of relief from the local anesthetic and steroid injection, we can denervate the innervation, the nerves to the joint for several months, several months of relief. They can, so the denervation can provide long-term relief after we do the blocks, the diagnostic blocks. Here, we're uh, targeting the lateral branches. They're small nerves, they innervate the sacroiliac joint, and the, they actually innervate uh, the ligament, the ligament and structure versus the capsule. But the variability is sort of wide, and sometimes there, it's, um, you know, there's overlap or they're, they're, they're not exactly where you think those nerves are, so that's why the denervation procedure can be a little tricky. Now, what we did in the past was use conventional, you know, typical radiofrequency denervation. But over the last couple of years, a new technique called cooled radiofrequency has emerged for this particular joint and others. And that's what has shown, if you look at the evidence, more efficacy than just regular conventional radiofrequency. So the evidence is fair for the cooled radiofrequency procedure. Along the length of 3 to 12 months, you can see it's a large range there. Um, nevertheless, patients that I've performed this procedure on actually do, for the most part, tell me they get several, several months of relief. The issue is this, that the cooled radiofrequency produces a larger lesion, and I'll show you a picture of that. That's why it's more effective. The lesion is larger than it is with conventional radiofrequency, and that's why we're seeing better results. The factors that are associated with positive outcomes here, in terms of the denervation of the sacroiliac joint, are shorter duration of symptoms, no opioids, lower baseline pain, um, no psychopathology, and younger age, typically. This is what it looks like. So this is, this is the comparison between the 
conventional radio frequency procedure and the cooled. Conventional is here. It creates an, el an elliptical burn, and so you have to be parallel to the nerve because you can see you're not going to get much um, effectiveness distal to the tip of the nerve. Whereas this is the cooled RF. You can see a bigger lesion, and certainly you're going to get a lot of coverage distal to the tip of the denervation probe. Um, the whole point of the cooling is that it, it creates a larger lesion, and then it cools the tissue that is surrounding the nerve, it allows an increase in power to create the bigger lesion. And it doesn't cause charring of the tissue, which is terrific. So this is the spherical shape produced by the cooled procedure versus the conventional elliptical shape produced by conventional radiofrequency denervation. So that's what we're doing for the sacroiliac joint. It's also actually done for the knee. I'm not going to go into that, but it's also quite effective for uh, knee pain from knee osteoarthritis, or especially in patients, too, who've had knee surgeries. So they have implants, and they have persistent pain. Quick jump to visceral pain. I just wanted to touch on this. This is, you know, I'm sure if you see patients who have pain, you see, you've seen patients who have, you know, persistent abdominal pain or pelvic pain. It can be grueling, really grueling. And it's tough, I think, to treat, come up with an algorithm of medications or otherwise, integrative therapies, to reduce that pain. But, you know, there, are, there can be some procedures that are helpful. Patients will describe this pain as diffuse, it's difficult to localize, and, you know, they may say, gosh, you know, I feel like I start sweating when I get a horrible abdominal pain. Um, and that's because the nerve, the visceral afferent nerves that travel, say, from certain parts of the abdomen, you know, travel along with the sympathetics, and that's why they'll get an activation of autonomic reflexes. I wanted to talk about three of these sympathetic nerve blocks, just in case you see patients with these conditions and you have a sense for the value of them. Stellate ganglion, celiac plexus, and hypogastric plexus. So these are different nerves that we would block for certain types of pain. If you have patients with complex fusional pain syndrome, for example, the neck, you know, ipsilateral arm, the stellate ganglion block can be helpful, not to cure it, but if they cannot tolerate physical therapy and restorative therapy, then the stellate ganglion block can potentially reduce pain enough for them to get into physical therapy. It's done in the neck, small needle, either under ultrasound or fluoroscopy, and you're targeting a deep, one of the deeper structures in the neck called the stellate ganglion, which is listed here, right? It's right here. So here's the stellate ganglion. It's low in the neck, C6, C7. It's actually between C7 and T1, right in there. And you're targeting that, blocking with local anesthetic. And if patients derive relief, it often helps them if they have CRPS, RSD, for example, to get into physical therapy. This is, can be helpful for patients who have intractable pelvic pain. Uh, women more than men, uh, and this because more women present with pelvic pain than men. And I've done this in certain patients uh, with you know, good efficacy. This is something that's, that's the deep structure. The superior hypogastric plexus is a, deep, is a deep structure between L5 and S1. It's right in here, L5 and S1. This is an anterior view, and you're inserting needles posteriorly to access that plexus. You can see axial view. What we're doing is targeting this area. Iliac vessels are here, here, and that's where the hypogastric plexus lies. And this is done with patients prone. Again, here's the hypogastric plexus here. Iliac vessels are here. Hypogastric plexus is right there. There are iliac vessels there, and there's the bladder right in front. So yeah, you have to be careful when you do this. But, uh, but I've had you know, women who 
are just not getting enough relief from anything else. They've seen gynecology. They've done multiple surgeries. You know, horrible endometriosis, for example. And, and this can be helpful for them. So I wanted to mention that. Then for patients who have, for example, by the way, I, what I failed to mention too is these deeper, these sympathetic blocks can be very useful for patients who have cancer of certain organs. That's a different talk on cancer pain, but it can be. If this is an example, pancreatic cancer, liver cancer, gallbladder cancer, and they have horrific you know, abdominal pain that's really not being treated with medications or surgery, this can be a lifesaver at times. Celiac plexus block, this, this plexus lies around L1, and this is just showing you where that is. Here's the celiac plexus, like a plexus of nerves, a network of sort of like spider webs around the celiac artery. This is showing the diaphragm, this is the spine, and they're showing the injection of medication and neurolytic along that area. So again, patients, you know, if you see patients who have bad cancer pain, they're not getting better, they can't tolerate medications, then this is something that can be very helpful. Here's the celiac plexus here and here. It's around the celiac vessel, diaphragm, and the spine. And it's showing, but what that's showing too is it's showing the input of the splenic nerves that create the plexus. And so this is a, an injection that's done with patients prone, two needles typically, local anesthetic is injected, and then for cancer pain, we inject neurolytic, like alcohol or phenol, and it can provide several months' worth of relief. Okay, let me, I have very little time, let me go through spinal cord stimulation, because I think this is important to know. The market for this is huge, neurostimulation. It's growing by leaps and bounds, and I wanted to have a sense for what's on the market now. This is um, using precise doses of electricity to target the spinal cord, essentially. Um, to block it, the block transmission of impulses from the cord to the brain. Now, you can do it in other areas of the body. You can do it actually, you know, peripherally along various different nerves, ulnar nerve, median nerve, for, for example. But I'll talk about the spinal cord. These are the devices that you'll see used. You'll see a programmer, patient programs the stimulation, turns it off, turns it on. There's a generator, like a cardiac pacemaker generator. This one is used for uh, spinal cord stimulation. And there's a lead, a little wire. And at the, the lead contains contacts. The contacts are where the current comes out, those little metallic things you're seeing there. What are the indications? If you have patients who have failed back surgery syndrome, meaning back pain, shooting leg pain, for example, after surgery, they're good candidates. Radicular pain, these are similar. Radicular pain, post-laminectomy pain, CRPS, complex regional pain syndrome. And then in pa for patients with interstitial cystitis, there's a special one that's designed, it's called Interstim, for nerve root stimulation in the sacrum for those patients. I mentioned two others that we don't do as much in the United States, in, inoperable ischemic leg pain and refractory angina. Well, those are used in, it's used in Europe for those reasons, actually, for those indications, not as much in the United States. A trial is done first. We place a little wire that I showed you on top of the cord. Patients go home for six days. This is sort of showing what it looks like. This is the, the wires on top of the epidural space here. This is an external device to which that wire is connected, and patients go home and use it you know, six days or so, trial it. And then they come back, we pull it out of the epidural space, they report how, whether it's effective and how much, how much relief are they getting, can they sleep better, do they reduce their opioid dose, those types of things is what we're looking for. And this is an example, too, of what the batteries look like, here, 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 compared to a quarter. So they're fairly thin and they're fairly small, and they're usually implanted in the upper buttock, but they can be implanted elsewhere. 
who are the candidates? Again, these are patients who usually have failed more conservative therapies. We want them to get 50% relief from the test lead, and we want the area of pain covered by the paresthesia. They feel a tingling sensation. Now, there's a new company, interestingly, that does not produce a tingling sensation. So they, what they, don't, they, don't, they don't feel the paresthesia. They just would feel pain relief. How does this work? This is intriguing. You know, it, based on animal studies, we think it activates A-alpha beta afferent fibers to reduce pain, may trigger spinal in, inhibitory interneurons, and interrupt pain signals at the dorsal horn level. It can reduce, uh, release serotonin, norepinephrine in the, in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. And even, even more astonishing, if you look at some of these animal studies, spinal cord stimulation is capable of blocking and reversing central sensitization in the cord, which I think is pretty amazing. You know, central sensitization is that pain amplification that we see as a result of chronic pain syndromes or, or trauma, for example. And there's an element to this that actually we, we think suppresses pain in the brain. This is showing you just how, how it's done. Uh, it's, the final implantation is done in the operating room with the battery and the lead. And this is the lead that's going in the epidural space. It's just showing you these contacts, these metallic devices here. This is what it looks like on AP view. It's in this, on the epidural space in the spinal cord. And that's what it looks like. I mean, the, the number of contacts are these metallic devices here. These contact numbers are large, number, more nu numerous now. I mean, there are eight of them. One company has 16 of them. The electricity flows through these contacts, and that's what reduces pain. I want to talk about one device that's new on the market, high-frequency stimulation. Interesting, right? 10, 000, it's using 10,000 hertz to apply to the spinal cord, current to, that applies to the spinal cord. And what that does is that it does not produce any paresthesia. There's no tingling sensation. Patients just would go through the trial and report whether they have relief or not. Same thing. How much relief, decrease opioid dose, improve quality of life. Interesting, though, and they compared it to traditional spinal cord stimulation and found that it, that it may reduce, at least in a couple of studies, back pain and leg pain better than traditional spinal cord stimulation. There's a wireless system, right? So there's one company that's developed a stimulator whereby you place that wire that I, that I showed you, or wires in the epidural space, but there's no battery. Patients wear like a belt. They have a belt on, and the receiver is in the belt, and this receiver communicates directly to the wire or wires on top of the epidural space. Success. Are these successful? This is the thing. If you have patients that may be candidates, it's better for us to trial them and implant them earlier. That is, less than two years after their chronic pain diagnosis. The success rate is 85%, less than two years, versus 25%, or I think it's actually less than that, 15% success rate if we wait more than 15 years after the diagnosis of chronic pain. And it is cost effective. You can see that at five years, if you compare stimulation in the appropriate patient to conventional pain therapies, the conventional pain therapies are more costly five years down the road. What are those conventional pain therapies? Physician visits, imaging, ER visits, chiropractic, massage. So they really compared all sorts of different therapies for pain control compared to stimulators. Interesting, here's that there are a couple of these on the market now. Um, transcutaneal, transcutaneous uh, electrical stimulation. This one uses a very small, short wire, like about this, this long, that you place along a peripheral nerve with a needle 
to stimulate the nerve, similar to spinal cord stimulation, to stimulate the nerve and thereby reduce pain in patients who have mononeuropathies. So, for example, median neuropathy or ulnar neuropathy, or um, I've done it in patients who have post-stroke and who have you know, pain in the shoulder area, and you can target the axillary nerve. It's very, it's non-invasive, and uh, I've, you know, it's new. I think it was released last year, but I'm seeing good results. The data on this is fairly sparse, I would say, frankly. I mean, it's FDA approved, but the, they, the study showed a significant pain reduction at three months and that it was safe at 12 months. So this is a peripheral stimulator device. And then I'm almost out of time. I'm almost finished. Uh, I just want to mention pain pumps. They're hockey puck-shaped devices. They contain, they say, morphine, dilaudid, clonidine, bupivacaine, and these tiny little doses then are delivered directly to the spinal fluid. And the indications essentially are for patients who have cancer, so intractable cancer pain, patients who have spasticity for multiple sclerosis, spinal cord injury can benefit from these, I think, quite a bit. Um, even patients who have horrible back pain from failed back surgery syndrome sometimes can benefit from these as well. Um, there are two different manufacturers. I've showed you the pump on the left-hand side. On the right-hand side, patients have a remote control device that they use. They can actually place over the pump. The pump is implanted usually in the abdomen in this area, and they can give themselves supplemental doses of whatever is in the pump. Non-malignant pain, there's a evidence base for it, but it's weaker than it is for cancer pain. For cancer pain, quite strong. Um, and interestingly, in the, one of the studies that was done for cancer pain several years ago, secondary outcome was improved survival. Secondary, not primary, but secondary outcome. And the pumps are cost-effective as well. If you look at them over the course of five years, conventional pain therapies are more expensive than intrathecal pumps in certain select patient populations. So I wanted you to hopefully take away from this presentation some of the procedural interventions that can help patients with chronic pain when to refer them, a little bit about spinal cord stimulation and intrathecal pumps. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. Yes, question? Yeah. Why is there such confusion in that source or in those literature sites? I would say that that's a great question, and I feel it's, and this happens with other sort of um, consensus documents too, that when you have primary care doctors or non-interventionalists that are on these committees or that are making these recommendations, right, there are, I think personally, I feel like they're not as in favor of them, right? I mean, if you had someone like me or others that are on these committees, well, I mean, we're going to advocate for these procedures. And, you know, clearly, I agree that I think that in the past, some of these injections are done, have been done too often and without good reason. And what I wanted to try to do is say, hey, look, there is a good evidence base here in the literature for certain types of procedures for certain types of patients. So I feel like, frankly, that they're, some of those, like up-to-date and so on, are really not, they're not, allowing the contributions of those who perform the procedures and to bring in that database. And one last question was, um, is imaging necessary on SIV suspected pain and cassette mediated suspected pain? No, I don't think so. Right? right, I think so. An anesthetic block to determine if um, they have the condition at hand. Yeah, I don't think so.
Yeah. Oh, well, if they've had, yes, so often I'll have, um, you know, say the infectious disease recommend prophylaxis beforehand, then yes, I'll do that. For the stim- you mean for the stimulator trial? Yeah, for the stimulator trial, now some, some irrespective of that, will go ahead and just give antibiotics before the trial. Uh, for the implant, I, give, I do give antibiotics for sure. I don't always do it for the trial. Yeah, Thank you. sure. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the stim wave. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you had a Yeah, good question. I have not used that device yet. I've had colleagues who've used it, and you know, some have felt like it's. Some have had some struggles a little bit with it in terms of the communication between this battery, this receiver that one has to wear, and then the leads. So uh, I feel like. It's probably useful for patients who don't want, well, who are very sick, for example. A lot of comorbidities, and we don't want to expose them to a longer period of time in the operating room for the battery implantation. And maybe even, you know, uh, older adults who don't want the battery. Or I've had some patients say, you know, who've been interested in it who don't want, for aesthetic reasons, I guess, don't want to have a battery implanted, but frankly, there's, it's more cumbersome, I think, to wear a belt. You've got to wear that all the time. You know what I mean? So, I, you know, I, my experience with that one is limited because I haven't done it myself yet. Uh, but I don't think it's quite as popular as the other devices. Yeah. Yes. So if a patient has bone metastasis, uh, can an injection help? I mean, like a nerve block help? Well, I, I mean, in those patients, usually I feel like not that helpful. I mean, I feel like a lot of those patients are already on high-dose oral steroids. Those patients, though, if they have bony metastasis and their pain is otherwise not controlled, I think those are good candidates for the intrathecal pump, right? Because then you can... It can spread larger, but what we've learned about the pump that I didn't have a chance to go into is that the, it actually doesn't spread as far from the tip of the catheter intrathecally as we used to think it did. It's only you know, a couple of millimeters, maybe centimeters actually, or so from the tip. And so it's not as diffuse as we thought, but you can target, you know, if they have bony cancer, if they have bony metastasis in a certain area of the body, you can put the catheter tip along that close to the dermatomal level and deliver intrathecal medications there, they can be very effective. No, sorry. Uh, what that meant was just the patients for that procedure are lying prone and it's approached from the back. Oh, it's still, still from the back. Even though the is a bit is lateral, but it's the approach is you're obliquing the image, and so you're approaching it slightly obliquely, but still in the back. Okay, still from yeah. Yeah, just, yeah. sorry about that. Yeah. 
Yes, it can. Well, I mean, there's no guideline necessarily on this. It can be low, it could be lidocaine, it could be buvivacaine, 0.25% or so. The, the key is to make the concentration lower because you don't want a nerve block. I mean, I don't, we don't want patients to feel weak in their lower extremity because you're adding, you know, 2% lidocaine, for example, to the mix because then they may feel weak. So it's a low, it's 0.25%, you know, half a percent lidocaine, something like that, that's when diluted going to very, very rarely cause a motor block. So, um, so, so it cannot be really rely on the, uh, the pectin insert itself. It, it really depends on the, your skills and the, uh, your experience. That's right. Okay, understood. Okay, so good, you bet. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. Right, so there's a protocol. There's a protocol for it. You place for that one, you place two leads in parallel. Um, so, and you're starting at a, around T8 uh, or so, and then it's going down to T10 or something. So it's two leads, and there's a protocol by which you follow and where you need to place the leads for, for low back and then shooting leg pain. And so the protocol is two leads versus one, you know. And, but you're still looking for the same outcomes in terms of the trial parameters. Yeah. Okay, good, thank you. Oh, right, yep. Do I what? I don't sedate for most of them, no. I mean, some patients require some Versed. I'll give them some Versed. Uh, now, for the denervation, yes, sometimes a little fentanyl, a little Versed. Sometimes for these cooled radiofrequency procedures that can be painful, I do. But I would say most of the time I'm not. And if I do, I'm not sedating them to the point where, you know, they're unconscious. 